This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 45 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Today being Purim, we're only four weeks and one day away from Passover, Pesach, and I'm sad to report that my childhood nemesis, Morris Ion, is dead, and because of that, Passover will never be the same. And so, as you might have guessed, the topic for this week is Passover, and specifically how price gouging at this time of year has contributed to some of the lost joys of Pesach, not to mention diminished bank accounts. Back to Morris Ion. Morris was a big influence on me in the old days. He often determined what was proper and what was not. When I was five, for example, I was told by my father that it wasn't permissible to put a stick of parav margarine on the table during a meat meal, quote, because of Morris Ion, unquote. I didn't know Morris myself, but I was impressed nonetheless that he commanded such authority. Near the end of fourth grade, I discovered who Morris really was. It turned out he wasn't a person at all, but a principle of Jewish law pronounced Maris Ha'ayin in the Ashkenazic way of the yeshiva world I was part of then. Today, in modern Hebrew, we pronounce it Marit Ha'ayin, and it means for the sake of appearances. In colloquial terms, if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck, it must be a duck. If something is proper to do or proper to eat, but it looks like something that's not proper to do or isn't proper to eat, and someone seeing us do that thing or eat that food will get the wrong idea. I finally understood why we couldn't serve power of margarine during a meat meal, because we didn't want to give anyone walking by our window the wrong idea that we were mixing meat with milk. The problem with this, of course, was that our window was on the fifth floor of an apartment building on a Lower East Side street, so anybody walking by it was more likely to give us the wrong idea. When I asked my father why we had to worry about someone walking by a window five stories above ground, he gave me the definitive answer for everything that didn't make sense, quote, because that's the way it's written, unquote. As I learned several years later, however, this time his answer was on the money. In several places in the Talmud, it states, quote, in every instance in which the sages prohibited something because of marit ha'ayin, the thing is forbidden even in the inner rooms, unquote. In other words, it was prohibited even if no outsider was likely to see it. It was a fence around a principle of law that itself was a fence around the law. To be sure, not everyone agreed with this principle all the time. It seems, for example, that the school of Hillel disagreed with extending the principle to such private areas of one's home. Perhaps the most relevant examples of the principle of Marit Ha'ayin are to be found in the Talmud tractate Avodah which deals with pagan worship practices. Three situations are presented. In one, a person gets a splinter in his foot while walking by an idol. In the second, a man drops some loose change in front of the idol. In the third, there's a spring of fresh water immediately in front of the idol. In all three cases, the man would have to bend down, and this could appear to someone else to be him bowing down to the idol. Similarly, 
If the mouth of the idol is a fountain and water is spouting forth, a person can't drink from it because someone may think he's giving the false god or goddess a kiss. This brings us back to Pesach. If a person dying of thirst may not bend down before an idol to drink from a pool of refreshingly fresh water, my father wouldn't allow us to put par of margarine on a meat table, why is it okay to have, say, fettuccine Alfredo on Pesach, even if the pasta in question is made from matzah, not flour, and thus only looks and acts like the real thing, but isn't? Surely, someone walking by the window would get the wrong idea. Morris Iron would be offended. For many years now, the supermarkets have been loaded with foods that would have sent old Morris into a tailspin. Spaghetti, macaroni, egg noodles of various widths, breakfast cereals that mimic popular varieties, breakfast pancake mixes, and even such horrors as pizza dough mixes, bagel mixes, sandwich roll mixes, and so on. This is Pesach? This is Passover? There was a time when the kinds of food we could eat were limited on Pesach, and people attempted to preserve those special tastes just for Pesach. They wouldn't make matzah brai, for example, during the year, or matzah meal pancakes. Those were special dishes just for the Passover holiday. That also meant preserving food restrictions that had long ago lost their meaning. Thus, for example, to this day, some people won't allow garlic into their homes on Pesach because when they were children in Europe, garlic cloves were sold out of baskets filled with flour. That's not the case today, but to allow garlic on their tables is somehow to diminish the uniqueness of Pesach for them. The reason, though, why there are so many of these faux products on the market today is precisely because the traditional foods were so limited. These new products give people more options. Some are even designed to make Pesach more fun for children or more palatable to adults. In the process, though, we lose something far more important. The food, after all, is incidental. Pesach itself is unique. The food restrictions and other distinctive features that accompany it are designed to emphasize that uniqueness. We wipe that out when the only difference between yesterday and today is that the bagel is not as chewy and the Cheerios taste a bit funny. While faux foods offer variety to an otherwise limited assortment of Passover options, they also add even greater expense to an already expensive shopping list. Let's explore, therefore, why Passover, why Pesach, is so expensive. And we'll start with the absolutely necessary Pesach staple, matzah. A 25-pound bag of all-purpose flour costs approximately $7.50 at Costco. That bag contains somewhere around 95 cups of flour. To this, add just under 3 gallons of, say, the ShopRite brand of spring water, which costs $0.84 cents per gallon right now. That comes to just over $10 worth of the only two ingredients in regular matzah. How many round, handmade matzot can be made from these two ingredients? Approximately 570 matzot, meaning just under 2 cents per matzah. Remember, these prices are retail. Matzah makers buy at wholesale prices, so it's much less than the nearly 2 cents I'm quoting. 
Okay, so how much does a box of seven round handmade matzot cost for Pesach this year? These matzot are known as shmura matzah, by the way, which for many people is the only matzah they'll serve at the Seder, and for many of those people, me included, it's the only matzah they'll eat throughout all of Passover. That makes all of us who eat shmura matzah captive customers. So how much does a box of seven shmura matzot cost? Well, the ones selling on Amazon range from around $25 a pound all the way up to around $40. In other words, anywhere between $3.50 to $5.70 per matzah, rather than the under two cents worth of ingredients that goes into each matzah. True, these matzot are somewhat labor-intensive, so we have to factor in the labor cost and all the other extras, cooking gas, oven, and plant maintenance packaging, delivery, halakhic considerations, there are several critical ones, and whatever else. Even so, it's still hard to see how you arrive at a markup that's between 200 and 325 times greater than the cost of the ingredients. And keep in mind, I'm using retail pricing. A box of machine-baked matzah is clearly much more reasonable. With each box containing 11 or 12 matzot, the average price this year is approximately 10 cents per matzah. But lest you think there's a bargain here, consider this. Most supermarkets see matzah as a loss leader, meaning the stores price it way down so that a consumer will buy other Passover products there too. So what does a one-pound box of domestically produced matzah meal or matzah farfel cost, meaning matzah that's ground up into fine powder or into little pieces, respectively? About $9 a pound on Amazon. Keep in mind that these products are mainly made out of the broken matzot produced on the assembly line, which otherwise would be thrown away. Also keep in mind that supermarkets have to pay inflated prices to the wholesaler and or manufacturer. They're to blame for some of the markup, but they're not to blame for the bulk of it. The problem with machine-baked matzot is that most rabbinic authorities encourage people to use the handmade shmura matzah, at least at the Seder table, if not for the entire festival. In other words, in order to more carefully observe the mitzvah of eating matzah on Pesach, at least according to these authorities, a person must spend anywhere between $3.50 to $5.70 per matzah, and that can add up to a small fortune over eight days. As I said, by the way, I use Shmura Matzah on Pesach, and I also encourage others to do so for the same reasons that most rabbinic authorities cite, so this isn't an attack on their rulings. I actually agree with them on this. I just don't agree with the price tag that goes with it. Matzah prices, of course, are only just the beginning when it comes to Pesach shopping. The prices for practically everything that's stamped kosher for Passover are inflated, even when the products are no different than the ones sold during the rest of the year, including products that are marked kosher for Passover all year long. People have been complaining about Pesach ripoffs for as long as I can remember. Clearly, something is wrong here, and has been for a very long time. The manufacturers, while they are to blame for the grossly inflated prices, are not to blame for the continuing problem or for its spiraling out of control. 
that onus rests squarely on the shoulders of the competent rabbinic authorities who have allowed this problem to continue for decade after decade because they're the ones who created the limited variety of Passover foods in the first place. At least that's true for Ashkenazic Jews, which most of us are. Sephardi Jews have a much broader variety to choose from. At the heart of Ashkenazic rulings is a ban on foods classified as kitniot, which means legumes, but today has been expanded way out of any reasonable proportion. They won't let you drink a bottle of regular Coca-Cola, for example, because it uses corn sweetener, which these authorities insist violates the kitniot ban. So Coke makes a batch of Passover-approved Coca-Cola using sugar, and which costs as much as a dollar more per bottle. This is a fact. Eating kitneyote doesn't violate any Torah law, but the ban on kitneyote, certainly as interpreted today, does violate Jewish law. Ashkenazic authorities know there's nothing wrong with kitneyote on Pesach, certainly not as presently interpreted, but they hide behind the precedent of tradition. The ban has existed for around 800 years, so it can't be changed. That's pure nonsense. Interestingly, some Ashkenazic authorities in Israel have reached the same conclusion, but that's not the case here in North America. Kitneo today is broadly interpreted to include real legumes and pretenders, thereby including such diverse items as rice, corn, millet, chickpeas, lentils, soybeans, and split peas, as well as green peas and string beans, most edible seeds, and any oils derived from these items, with the possible exception of peanut oil and corn syrup, depending on which rabbinic authority you ask. The ban on kitneyote and its derivatives is not Torah-based, even by the wildest stretch of anyone's imagination. It was also unknown to the sages of the Talmud or to the early post-Talmudic authorities. One Talmudic source did argue that rice was a kind of maize, the so-called corn of the Bible, and wanted it banned on Pesach, but it was clearly ignored by his colleagues, one of whom even insisted that rice had to be one of the required staples at the Seder. For the record, by the way, the corn we know was unknown in biblical and Talmudic times. No one outside the Americas even knew it existed until it was introduced in Europe by Christopher Columbus. Back to Kitniot. We don't even know when the ban actually began or who instituted it. We find reference to it for the first time in the writings of a 13th century scholar, Rabbi Isaac ben Joseph of Corbal in France, but he stated that the ban was long-standing by then. He also made it clear that the ban was meant as yet another fence around the law prohibiting chametz, leaven, but that the items in question were not themselves chametz. Sephardic rabbinic authorities in the 13th century, when they heard about the ban, actually laughed at it, calling it a minhagstut, meaning a nonsensical or foolish practice. In other words, it was a practice that was actually forbidden by Jewish law. A handful of Ashkenazic rabbis at the time felt the same way. Notable among them, another 13th century authority from France, Rabbi Samuel ben Solomon of Falaise. His Talmudic commentaries are most prominent in the Babylonian Talmud tractate dealing with the laws of Passover. 
If the ban on kitniot stretched back to the rabbis of the Talmudic age in the land of Israel, a claim often made for which no evidence exists, this rabbi would have known about it and wouldn't have so casually dismissed it. Other areas where prices seem to soar around Passover are for meats and fish. The sages of the Talmud argued that meat and fish were two requirements, requirements, not options, for festive meals, such as on Shabbat or any of the festivals on the Jewish calendar, Purim included, by the way. Their opinion took on the force of law and is accepted by many as such. But there's no such biblical requirement. The meat-fish rule is a rabbinic invention meant to add a sense of luxury to Shabbat and festive meals. Rabbinic authorities could ease the pain to the pocketbook by saying that the fish and meat rule is no longer necessary and need not be observed. At the very least, they can suspend the rule for a period of time, such as just for Passover. There's even a rabbinic precedent in this regard that directly relates to the Pesach situation. In the mid-17th century, the price of fish soared in the Czech community of Mikulov, also known as Nicholsburg. This apparently was due to the fact that the rich Jews of the town were undeterred by high prices when it came to buying fish for Shabbat, thus leaving the poor Jews the choice of overpaying or going without fish and feeling guilty. In order to restore reasonableness to the price of fish, the chief rabbi of Moravia at the time, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Krochmal, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, actually banned the eating of fish for a period of two months. He based his decision on an even more serious precedent recorded in Helmut, in which the practical application of a Torah-based law was rewritten to force down prices. As the Talmud teaches, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, then president of the Sanhedrin, the legislative body of the Jewish community in Israel at the time, changed a certain law of sacrifices in order to force down the cost of those sacrifices. The Tzemach Tzedek did the same with the fish. Some years ago, a Jerusalem religious court did something similar. The Torah requires each person to take an etrog, a citron, on the festival of Sukkot because the price of the ritually required festival fruit had risen to a too high level, the court ruled that two people could share in the ownership of an ectrog. Rituals aside, the rabbis have stepped in time and again to keep prices down. Throughout the Middle Ages, for example, we have examples of communities that forbade Jews from renting apartments for three or four years if the previous tenant was also a Jew. They did that because non-Jewish landlords were inflating their rents in ghetto areas. The practice included going to the current tenant and demanding an exorbitant increase in rent. When the tenant couldn't pay, he or she was evicted and the apartment was then rented to another Jew at a higher price. Since non-Jews wouldn't want to live in a Jewish ghetto, the ban effectively forced the non-Jewish landlords to bring down the rents they charged. Rabbis could issue such rulings because price gouging is an economic crime in Jewish law. The commentator Rashi even likens it to a thief who steals from the poor. According to Maimonides, the Rambam, 
The rabbis may even be obliged to fix prices, especially where essential commodities such as bread, oil, eggs, wine, fruits, vegetables, and meat are concerned. Price gouging, according to the Talmud, is a profit that exceeds 16.7% of the actual cost. 16.7% of the actual cost. Shmuramatsa, for example, exceeds that profit margin by at least 15 times that and probably much more. The law itself is based on a verse from Leviticus, quote, And if you sell something to your neighbor or buy something from your neighbor's hand, you shall not defraud one another, unquote. Price gouging qualifies as defrauding the buyer. Pesach foods are always going to cost more than similar foods at other times of the year. That's the nature of Pesach and the stringent laws that apply to it, and we all accept that. What we don't need to accept are high costs that defy logic and reason, and that we have no choice but to pay. The time is long overdue for the competent religious authorities to act on our behalf. There are a number of steps they could take to bring down the cost of Pesach substantially. For example, after fair warning to the manufacturers, they can issue a series of simple rulings, each lasting, say, for two years, just enough time for the impact to be felt as widely as possible within the Pesach food industry. Here's one thing they can do. If they don't want to permanently end the ban on kidney oat, they can declare it temporarily suspended for the next two years. This would open up a wealth of inexpensive alternative foods to the kosher consumer. General Mills gluten-free corn checks or Kellogg's gluten-free rice krispies or post-fruit pebbles, for example, would be perfectly fine on Passover if the kidney oat ban was lifted and they wouldn't cost anywhere near what the matzah-made Cheerios like cereals cost on the market. The rabbinic authorities can also temporarily set aside the insistence that festive meals must contain meat and fish. They can also urge consumers to seek non-meat, non-fish options for such meals. Some health-minded authorities have already been doing that all year round, by the way. The rabbinic authorities can also determine what a reasonable markup should be for shmura matzah and other Passover foods, and they could ban the eating of any brand that sells for more than such a reasonable marked-up price. To be sure, opening up the varieties of foods available on Passover would violate what my old nemesis Mars Ion stood for, but would make Passover more palatable to people who don't want to wipe out their bank accounts just to put Pesach foods on the table. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, 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 and email me, please. Chag Purim Sameach. Shabbat Shalom, stay healthy, and stay safe.